Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 99 of the Mandolins and Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. How is everybody doing? Hope you're doing well. I apologize, it took so long to get this episode out there. Um, Mike and I, we just, it took forever for us to be able to get this uh, second phone call in. Both of us were super busy, and I really appreciate Mike carving out some time to get this in there. Um... Uh, it was great to talk to him. He's so nice. And I appreciate everybody who sent in questions. And I apologize if we didn't get to all of them. Um, he had, we had a small window of time to get this done. And uh, I'm glad we got it done. And I think you'll be happy with the answers. Uh, I want to mention that on August 4th, which is a Wednesday coming up, I'm going to be in Michigan. And I am going to be hanging out up at Northfield. They are doing an evening at the Mandol Inn, the Marshall Mandolin Summit, and it's live at the Villa on Verona uh, in Marshall, Michigan, and it's 6 to 9 p.m. It says BYO, beer, buddies, blankets, lawn chairs, etc. And I'm hoping to be picking a few tunes with a couple of my buddies, including Keith from the uh, Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. He and I have some other things coming up here, too, which I'll announce just a little bit later once we get everything all firmed up. So Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Be sure to follow them on Instagram as well, and and I hope to see you guys there. This is going to be a really exciting time. I'm glad this this is happening. I'm looking forward to meeting Adrian in person and everybody else there from Northfield so I can shake their hands and thank them so much for for sponsoring this podcast. I really appreciate that. And speaking of sponsors, Peghead Nation. With Peghead Nation's video streaming courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass, you'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. Who, you ask? Well, Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, and Chad Manning. That's who. Everything from beginner to advanced stuff, you're going to find it there. The courses all include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And... Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to PegheadNation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. And Pava Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player right there in Austin, Texas. Uh, man, there's some beauties out there right now, too. I'm seeing all those pictures that are getting posted up on the cafe as they're making their way into shops. Get yourselves one while they're still around. All right, let's get into part two with Mike Chemnitzer, everybody. Cheers. Talk to you soon with episode number 100 with my hero, Sam Bush. You want to talk about calling? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, how did that come so, about? So I, um, I got to – my first experience with calling – well, I knew, I knew of, of Bill through uh, Tom Ellis. I remember when, when Tom and uh, Bill – uh, shared workspace and Tom and I would, would, uh, write letters. And, and, um, if you can imagine, uh, that pre pre computer and, um, and, and we would send photographs to one another, uh, sometimes as well. But, um, I might've first met Bill at, at, um, American stringed instruments association, powwow in Pennsylvania and I don't know if I talked um, CAD drawing with Bill that first meeting or not 
but I certainly did uh, other times when I'd see him. I might have I might have visited with him at a, a NAM show in Nashville, and certainly a few different times at a NAM show in in Anaheim, in California. And I was just very interested in in how a person makes a, a drafting or a technical drawing on a computer with a keyboard. I mean, it, it just seemed like a total, it was a total mystery to me how that that was possible. But also the, the incredible um, things that it can do. But still, I, I didn't have any, I didn't have any um, dreams of making my own parts or anything. But it's a powerful tool for making templates. So I could, I could plot my drawings to scale. Uh, well, imagine like, for, okay, for a, for a, uh, a neck profile, uh, for an F5 neck profile, I could, I could print it, print a plot of it. I could tape that um, to a piece of aluminum flashing or, or whatever material and um and score it and and bend the aluminum to break away and um with very little effort you can get to a very accurate template in a, in short order wow before that i would actually draw on on aluminum aluminum and i would scribe and then i would cut it out with a jeweler saw and then even though my eyes were like eagle sharp uh for most of my life um i I typically put on magnifiers and files with files i would uh, shape my templates you know and i have i have boxes and drawers (laughs) full of templates made that way and there's a lot of labor that goes into that but but so back to back to my chat with bill out in California, he said, uh, he said, I'll tell you what, he said, bring your drawing to Texas and, and, uh, and we'll make a part. I'll, I'll, I'll show you how you put surfaces on it. And I, and I will make a part. And I said, I'm going to take you up on it before you change your mind. Well, that was probably, <laughs> probably January. Um, I think that's when the NAM shows typically are in California. And early March, I was in Austin, and I spent three days with Bill, mostly mostly at the at his uh, computer station, and um, in the it's probably probably eleven o'clock at night or so that third day, um, I walked out of that shop with a piece of maple that was that was carved on the outside like an F5 back. Wow. And it, <laughs> it was like more exhilarating for me than I could possibly express. And um, I don't even know where I would have been staying, probably in a motel someplace. But but I was so excited. I drove to Tom Ellis's house. and. Um, I don't know if he was up or not, but he came out on his porch, and and uh, and I showed him that part, and he was happy for me, and it, it was just it was just amazing. That's so cool. 
How did you guys come up with the the um the collaboration for those Tim O'Brien models? Well, I was having a bad day. This is this is all before all this CAD stuff. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was during the process. Maybe maybe I was learning CAD. Um, but I was having a bad day domestically here in northern Michigan and I uh called Collings. I, you know, it could have I don't know if it was Bill that answered the phone back then or if it was if it was uh Steve. But but I what I do remember is uh asking them if if they ever consider making mandolins. And um they said nope. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, uh, well, I think that you should, you know, I think you should, you should consider it. I mean, a, a good percent of your guitar customers would probably love to have a mandolin also that you built, even, even your guitar customers that, that aren't mandolin players, you know, they might be interested in learning the mandolin and, um, and anyhow, so that they got nowhere. Oh, but I added that. Furthermore, I'll come and and uh, and and set it up and, and and run it or or help set it up and help run it. Whatever I don't remember uh, my words. But um, but a week or two later, or maybe a day or two later, uh, I got a call from them, and they said, "Well, we've th- I said, "I'll bet it was a week or two later." So they said, well, you know, we've been thinking about it, you know, and I think that maybe we're inter- interested in mandolins building and um, and interested in you uh, coming down and being part of it. And, and um, by then, my situation seemed to be different. And uh, so I declined, but I, I told him that that it's a great idea and that they should do it and I'll help them in any way that I, I can. I think there was a, I think there was a, a, a period of time though, that where I was, uh, I think I, when they called back and said, yeah, I think that even though I wasn't feeling like I needed to flee my situation, I I think that I was still entertaining the idea. Yeah. Because I remember talking to Bill about, well, what about the orders that I have, um, Nugget Mandolin orders? And he said, well, he said, we'll help you build them here. You know, we can machine parts for you and stuff. Oh, wow. I thought, well, yeah, that'd be cool. That could be good. And, uh, but ultimately, oh, and also, and also, at that same time, we hatched the idea of doing a Tim O'Brien model. And um, and uh, I thought it was a good idea f- for me because it's not anything that I could ever pull off on my own. You know, I'm a one-person shop. Right, right. And um, and uh, this would that would to collaborate with with a company like Collings would allow me to to be part of the Tim O'Brien model um 
because I felt like it was inevitable. I'll bet I'll bet there'll be others <laughs> on down the road as well. Yeah. Um, it was a limited number of them too, right? Yeah, it was very limited. I, I bet there were three dozen or so. Yeah, and, well. and they. Um, I remember like doing some research on it, and they were they were uh, they were like hard to get. Like I remember, I think somebody on a Mandolin Cafe post that I saw earlier this week was like, I had a I had deposits at three different shops just to make sure I got one. <laughs> uh huh. You know, that's amazing. Yeah, those cafe members, they know. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they're good. They're they're good at acquisitions. Yeah, no good kidding. at catch and release. They're good at the, all the dynamics. You know? <laughs> I admire their their um, abilities. Um, yeah. So anyhow, there weren't there weren't a lot of them, and they didn't sell for a lot of money. They probably they probably sell for more than that now. Yeah, I'm sure. But um, so so me being part of so me becoming a a Collings employee never happened, but the Tim O'Brien project did and uh you know it, and it didn't make me any extra money and i know it didn't make collings any extra money but uh i think that it, it you know it, it didn't hurt collings's credibility to to be involved with with an actual mandolin builder you know as as they're um entering that market too and uh and for me, you know, I just I bet I benefited immensely from from my interactions with with uh, my friend Crazy Bill. He um he he was he was he was cra- crazy uh, in ways, but uh, brilliant, and, and I learned a lot from him. I, I got a chance to ask some of the listeners if they had any questions for you. And I got quite a few messages and I pared them down to the most common questions. And the number one questions had to do with Tim O'Brien. And the, the questions were, why did Tim ask for an A model? Because you had been making F models only up to that point, And why the black top? Yeah, well, I think for Tim, it was an economics thing. He was young and just had moved to Boulder and was hoping to make money playing music. And, um, and so, so he, I remember I asked him, would you like an F5? And he says, no, I'm thinking about an A model. And I said, that sounds good to me. (laughs) And, uh, as far as the black top, um, I had a I had a little collection of spruce, mostly viola tops from Europe, and um, and my friend John Hutchison would would mail me spruce on his travels, playing music and whatnot. And um, he he sent me a a viola top from um, that he bought in a music store in a violin shop in uh, L.A. And um, it had a gray, um, it had a, a gray mineral stain in it. Oh wow! But at that point, I had been um, learning about wood and learning learning to evaluate wood. So I was tapping on things, rubbing my fingertips across 
the wood and listening to it. And from my little collection of material, I um, the um, viola top that my friend John had mailed me, I thought was the best the best piece I had. And um, so I told Tim about it, and I asked him what he thought about a black top, because that um, that mineral stain would show through a sunburst, and and, um, and, a, and a black top would uh, it wouldn't show through a black top. And um, he was agreeable to that. And Gibson had made a lot of black topped instruments, you know, lots of them. Mm-hmm. And one of the first. Uh, Gibson F's that I was ever was ever around was owned by John Hutchison. It was an F2, and uh, I was just mesmerized by that instrument. It was just the looks of it and um, and the sound of it. So so it just didn't seem like a you know a big stretch to make a an A model from. Um, to make an A model with a black top. And that was your first A model then that you built? Well, kind of simultaneously, I was making some um, prototype mandolins at Ulm where, where I took a job. It allowed me to, it allowed me to uh, move to Colorado rather than move back to Ohio. Right. That's right. And, um, you know, it was interesting. I, w- I worked there full time for a year and then for a lot of years after that i did i carved uh, resonators for them and custom saw inlays for special orders and um and i i did some mother of pearl engraving too i chuckled because that was the 1970s <laughs> i i'm still i still aspire to get good at that um yeah, so anyhow, so so for Tim, um, getting an A model, it was it was hundreds of dollars rather than over a thousand dollars, which was what I was getting for for uh, F5s and back in the mid 1970s. Those instruments would possibly bring more now. <laughs> yeah, a l- little bit more, huh? <laughs> yeah. You're talking you're talking a little bit about the um tapping the wood and feeling the fingertips and another question that um that that we received was uh how does the wood how does the wood choices varied over the era for you? Good question. Well, I started out with um viola tops that that I got from Metropo- Metropolitan Music in uh, Baltimore. I drove out there and hand-selected stuff. And then I would get tops through the mail from my friend John. Um, And uh, when I was apprenticing in Southern Ohio, I I, uh, would travel around looking for uh, figured maple, lumber yards, mills, word of mouth. And um, which eventually led me to this um, wood hoarder who, <laughs> who had a sawmill uh, that he ran in his backyard part-time. And um, we became great friends, and I guess some of the 
I guess some just wonderful stuff from him. I still have a, I still have a few pieces of it. I have one of the best pieces I ever got from him, sugar maple that's in in a batch of F5s that I'm working on right now. Oh, wow. But, but back to your question about how about all the woods over the years and then in the mid mid 1970s um shortly after i moved to colorado i started harvesting engelman trees engelman spruce trees nine ten thousand feet above sea level on the on the front range and um it, it was uh comparable good luck to building a mandolin for tim o'brien it's uh it's remarkable stuff it's very untypical for engelman uh, the high altitude severe winds all the pine trees just have uh, branches on one side i don't know if there are pine trees in those areas now after the blights and whatnot but but back then there sure was and um uh, just uh, it's, it's great stuff. I I still use it. So then I moved to Michigan in 1981, and that of course presented uh, figured maple opportunities in, in the Upper Peninsula and even the even the Lower Peninsula. The, um, so I would I would always buy just as much good stuff, especially great stuff that I could afford. I'd buy great stuff even when I couldn't afford it. Um, and and also in the 1980s, I bought two very large logs that were harvested in the in the northwestern United States. And it's a it's a naturally occurring hybrid. Engelman would be one of the one of the parts to that hybrid. And um, I have used it over the years for every two point that I've made since since acquiring that wood. Oh wow! Every octave mandolin, every mandocello. I sent a few pieces of it to Bill Collings, and he called me up and he said, "He said, man, that's great red spruce." But of course, it wasn't red spruce. <laughs> but it but it has it has that weight and that stiffness. Um, that's so important for a, for a decent mandolin. What year did you buy the the logs in? Those those were in the 1980s, you know. And I don't, I, 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 if I were to guess, I'd say probably in the middle of the 1980s. A guitar maker, a guitar maker friend, a guitar maker friend of mine bought those logs, and uh, and I bought. A bunch. He he split it. It's just beautiful stuff, wide and clear and even. And um, um, he, so I bought a, I bought a, you know maybe I bought a third of what he had. And um, but then over the years he never did, um, he never did build guitars. Maybe maybe he built a few. I'm not sure. But uh, eventually, I kept buying more of it, and then, and then maybe ten years or so ago, I bought all the rest of it. Oh, okay, wow. And, and maybe that was fifteen years or so ago. Was it significantly more to buy it fifteen years ago as it was from the eighties? 
Like, did, does something like that go up in price or? Sure, I paid more for it as time went on, but but if for an expensive mandolin, I mean, who cares how much? Well, I mean, you have to care. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I, I almost said, who cares how much the, the top costs? But the point <laughs> is, the point is, if you've spent $200 per top, it's insignificant. Right, yeah. And I, and I spent far less than that. Wow, okay, sure. And so, and so, so the cost of the spruce just didn't matter, you know. And for me, it's always been important to try to get great quality stuff and get – a substantial amount of it so that, so that you can learn about it and, and keep using it over the years. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So then uh, in 1991, I, I drove out to the Adirondacks with TJ Thompson and we purchased several large red spruce logs and uh, had them motor freighted back to Michigan where they were, um, Mostly turned into dreadnought guitar, dreadnought guitar tops. Um, I kept all the rest of it for mandolins, and uh, I ended up with about three hundred red spruce mandolin tops. Oh wow! I, I still I still have half, and also I I kept uh, quite a few pieces that were big enough for uh, mandolas. Um, Mandicellos and, and my octave mandolins. Is there like a company that you that that you have milled them for you, like kind of cut them down into manageable pieces once the log arrives? Yes, I had a I had an ongoing relationship with a, a fellow here in Northern Michigan that that had the Woodmiser's largest largest mill. Oh wow! And. Uh, and you know, and I've had him saw a lot of logs for me, mostly logs that were not for musical instruments, but but um, yeah, it's funny. I mean, I just I, I just I knew what I knew what the product had to end up being. It has to be, you know, the proper uniform thickness to, to for dreadnought guitar. You know, and it needs to be extra thick, of course, and um, because they're blanks, you know, and they get glued up and they get thin. Um, but also, I was fully aware of that there could be no run out. Um, run out is where the grain um, doesn't go parallel with the faces of the of the material, and um, and so, so I don't know. I mean, I just. I just went out there and I had a, I had a, a chalk line, you know, I'd look at the log, they snap a line and, um, and I was, you know, direct him to how, where to orient it on the saw. Actually, I think I drew lines, you know, to work to, so that he would saw it. And then, then we'd have to raise and lower the opposite end to address that run out thing. And and we did that for days. And, no. uh, I wish I, I wish I had a photograph and and I took some photographs. It's probably on um, probably on um, thirty five millimeter film, which which hopefully I'll run across 
someday. But I mean, we had it would have filled up a a, a single car garage, floor to ceiling, if not a two car garage. It was a lot of <laughs> it was a lot of guitar tops. Um, but anyhow, so so all that wood that I just mentioned, I still have. Um, ample amount of it from every tree I've ever harvested. And so I'm not going to run out of wood. Wow. That's cool. Is there any, um, is there any wood that you've ever worked with or ever wanted to work with? That would be like, if you, if, if, if cost wasn't an issue, like your dream mandolin build the woods, is there anything out there that you would want to use or do you already have it? Yeah, I think that I have the best wood ever. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so so one thing that I didn't point out about this wood, I, I alluded to uh, when uh, Bill Collings thought that that, that uh, hybrid spruce that I had was was red spruce. And so I I measure the um, I measure the density and the speed of sound uh, of all my spruce. And um, it, over time, with feedback from other players and, and from experimenting and whatnot, there, there's, there's a small range um, that good players typically love for their, for their instruments. And so my Engelman has, is right in that pocket and um, that hybrid spruce also. And those in that high altitude, Engelman that I harvested, it has the same average density uh, as my red spruce, and um, I'm awfully fond of my red spruce too. But in every tree, you know, you you might think that you might think that uh, wood and that came from the same tree is going to be the same, if not similar, but that's not true at all. And I and I would say that that's probably because the sun, you know, is 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 uh, oriented to to one side of the tree typically, and you know, and it goes through its yearly cycle. And um, in the case of my Engelman, there's the prevailing winds, and I mean, it's a very windy area. It's four miles as the crow flies to the Great Divide. Uh, but but you feel like I mean, yeah, you feel pretty confident that you've, I mean, it definitely sounds like you put some time into, into finding it. I feel confident that I have some of the best material, um, possible. However, you know, I mean, I, I'm, um, I'm not exactly out beating the bush looking for more wood, but I, I still keep my ears open and I'm an opportunist and, <laughs> And uh, I acquired some um, a small amount of wood from a salvaged building in New York State um, a few decades ago, and um, and it was it's my best guess that it was white spruce. It is wonderfully wonderfully stiff and and a very high speed of sound. And a and and a little bit less dense than even antique um, red spruce. Oh, no be. kidding! It, it, my best guess is it is white spruce. 
and you know spruce is not you know spruce is when you're selling logs to the mill um you know they scale it and they buy it just like just like um a lot of times with maple a lot of a lot of places with maple they don't separate the hard maple from the soft maple um it's just maple and it gets sawn up i mean and other other um places do separate it all the basketball floors those are that's always sugar maple that's the that's the hard maple and that's mostly what gibson used for instruments and maybe i didn't cover maple but i I guess i did mention that when i moved to to michigan that that was this is a great area for for finding for finding maple yeah so i'm i'm not going to run i'm not going to run out but i would like to I'd like to find a stash of that antique white spruce um, or whatever that stuff was. And, and the reason why is because it's, it's right in that sweet spot um, in terms of density and speed of sound, but it's slightly less dense, which makes it more responsive and um, would make instruments that, would not stay on a music music store's wall you know they're just um too many players are attracted to that, <laughs> that type of responsiveness on an instrument what is the um what is the best mandolin besides your own that you've ever played it would have to be gibson lore number 71634 and it's 1922 and um, I've been lucky to be able to study that instrument extensively. It's the favorite favorite lore of some some very good players. And um, I've I was even able to build two bench copies of it. And the, the term bench copy comes from the violin world, and it, and it is making a reproduction of an instrument while the original is is right there on the bench all through the process from the very beginning to stringing it up. And, um, and on those two bench copies, I painstakingly chose all the materials with matching densities. And I, and I was able to get those densities from a CAT scan, from a CT scan from that from that instrument that's incredible anyhow it's a it's a pretty good one. <laughs> oh man that is amazing it is it is it is i i call it the gold standard um yeah no it's it, it is amazing and i and i kind of know the answer to this um just from interviewing some some other mandolin builders but one of the questions too was uh do, do you and other master builders ever pick each other's do you guys get together and have conference calls or talk every now and again and share secrets <laughs> we probably would share secrets if we had any <laughs> but um <laughs> but uh yeah i've i have uh, had the pleasure of being friends with several other builders and unfortunately not not all of them but uh i i even visited steve gilcrest in uh, australia oh, cool. that was 
It was it was that was surreal. I slept in his shop. <laughs> Did you really? <laughs> <laughs> was, yeah, in a little in a little bedroom right above the middle of it. Oh wow! Uh, and it, it, I wasn't on a bench. I was in a very <laughs> wonderful, comfortable bed. And um, yeah, so it's 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 fun to um, it's fun to. Uh, you know, chat and visit with, with other builders. Uh, Steve asked me what I would like to see, uh, in a shop. And, and I said, uh, you're spruce. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said, sure. And he led me into this. It would be like a, an enormous closet or a small bedroom sized room. And he had spruce from floor to ceiling. Wow. And, uh, and it was, it, it, we, we spent, we spent a considerable amount of time in there and he was really gracious. Every, every piece, you know, has a story and, and its own characteristics and whatnot. Yeah, it was, that was, it was, it was very special. Oh, that's awesome. Have you ever gotten an order from somebody where you saw the name and you're like, whoa, wow. Oh yeah, I mean, um, yeah, luck, lucky me. I mean, I'm thrilled to. I'll tell you what. What thrills me is to build for for enthusiastic uh, players that that just love mandolin music and, are, and that are serious. And I've had the great fortune to build for a whole bunch of those people all over the decades you know and many of them are are as good as anybody that you would hear on the radio except for sam and maybe a few <laughs> but uh but you know typically they have families and day jobs and they play in a in a regional band mm-hmm. yeah you know they, they, they they'll have their two night a week gig or whatever and play local festivals and whatnot. You know, and I love I love uh, to hear that people who who um are buy the instruments too like that, you know, because yeah, it's an investment and and I'm a firm believer and they should be played, sure. man. Yeah, well it is in a way, but if and and it's and it's sort of like the sadness that I had felt from time to time when when a player sells one of my instruments or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But the bigger picture is that those those instruments don't die when that happens, and uh, you know it might be the best thing that ever <laughs> to a builder. It, it, that's happened to me more than once, where all of a sudden this instrument that I always uh, this instrument that I might have wished would be seen and in. Um, whatnot and um all of a sudden gets sold to somebody this this touring nonstop coast to coast oh, right. and everybody's talking about it yeah and so those instruments that somebody buys for whatever reason and and they don't leave their they don't leave the house and whatnot who knows what their with their future sure that's be. a good point that's a good point yeah no i think that that's i think that 
puts the right perspective on it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I got two more questions for you here. And then um, okay. and what what is some advice that you have for um, budding, maybe amateur luthiers or, or you know, probably some professional luthiers listening to this too. What's some advice for some luthiers though that you would have, especially if they're starting out though? Yeah, I, I uh, always like talking with, I always like fielding questions from, from uh, other builders and, and especially, especially people that are starting out. But my advice is acquire wood um, and learn to uh, measure the speed of sound and the density and keep records and um, then build as many instruments as possible and try to get as much feedback as you can. Uh, furthermore, I um, suggest that they consider partnering with a music store and it can get your instruments out there more further away and, and possibly uh, give you more feedback. But, but in, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of it. I mean, to, to build, um, to to learn how to play i mean the the, the number one thing is to play. play play as much as you can and the same goes with building and um yeah you you learn we get better at what we spend time doing it sounds like you love what you're doing <laughs> i do yeah, yeah. I hear it, man. you know i've i always have i always have i, I still do and if i if i don't if I stop loving it, I'm going to quit. Yeah, we don't want that, man. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, well, the final question is, do you have a favorite beer? Shorts Brewery is 15 minutes from my shop. Nice. And uh, and I'm fond of their Humalupa IPA. When I'm traveling and, um, and at dinner with friends or something and, and – uh, and don't get a local recommendation. Mm -hmm. Bell's too hard. It would be my. Default. Oh, I love bells. I'm glad that it's <laughs> everywhere. I look forward to. Um, I, I love Oberon just because it reminds. It lets me know that spring is here. Because down in, well, it comes all the way down to South Carolina and back in Michigan. You know, Oberon Day was a big oh, day, nice. man. And um, you know, so there's even nice. a, a restaurant down the road that whenever they get the keg of Oberon, they'll text me once they tap it so I can get there and <laughs> and have a glass out of the uh, a draft, you know, because it goes fast. That's pretty yeah, cool. I love it. That's pretty cool. So, so man, th thank you. I I probably made it through this time better than last time, but but maybe that's just hopeful. Oh no, it was great, man. On my part, but, so great. But, and just um, talking to you is just. A I blast. appreciate your. I appreciate your interest and in, in your time. Yeah, man. Well, I appreciate your time and and um and it's just great. And I know that the the listeners do too because again, the feedback I got from part one was was fantastic, man. And it's yeah, great. good. I, I just I just regret that I don't rate as as well as Lynn <laughs> that we're doing ours over the phone and you visited him personally. But that's okay. But that's okay. That's okay. Definitely next time. Oh, thank you so much to Mike for doing that. What a great guy. Uh, again, sorry it took so long for us to um, to get this out there. It, we didn't get together until, boy, it was last Saturday, and then I've been in the middle of gigs, so I haven't had time to edit it and all that good stuff. So I'm glad we finally are getting this out there. Thank you to everybody listening. 
And um, if you're in Michigan, Northfield Summit in uh, Marshall, Michigan, coming up on August 4th. I'll be playing some tunes, and I'd love to meet you. So until then, y'all, talk to you next week. Cheers, everybody.